Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode number 59 of the Bible Reading Podcast. And as you can tell from our special intro music, today we're talking about the Super Friends. Or more accurately, our big Bible question of the day is, how do Superman and Aquaman illustrate an important truth about spiritual gifts and how God has designed his church? And yes, believe it or not, it's going to be a serious discussion. So, hooray, we made it to Friday. Today, we're going to only read three chapters of the Bible. Why? Because Robert Murray McShane's original Bible reading plan was designed for a non-leap year. And unfortunately, he died before he could lead his church through that. So, he never designed one for the leap year. That's sad for them and him way back in the 1800s. But it does give us a little bit of freedom here to be creative. So, today, We're going to read Exodus chapter 11, and we're going to see the 10th plague, which was the death of the firstborn. We're also going to read Job 29 and Luke 14. Now, rather than continue on in reading 1 Corinthians, we are going to continue discussing 1 Corinthians 14 from yesterday, which is a spiritual gifts passage. Tomorrow, February 29th, we're only going to read 1 Corinthians 15. Now, that's the resurrection chapter, the the number one chapter in the Bible that's all about the resurrection of Jesus. And tomorrow, as you might imagine, we're going to talk about the resurrection. So I'm really looking forward to that. For me, it's a treat. Two out of the four favorite things I talk about and teach about as a pastor and a preacher is spiritual gifts and the resurrection. So I'm excited for these two passages being together. Today, we finish up our discussion of spiritual gifts. Every saved Christian in the church is important, necessary, and dependent on the others. We can't live without each other. A pastor like myself can't say to an evangelist, hey, we don't need you. Our members can just invite other people and we can grow that way. Likewise, the teacher can't say to the faith-gifted person, we don't need your faith. We just need to teach the Word of God more. I've illustrated this truth in the past with a strange kind of silly saying that tells you about what age I grew up in. And that saying is this, there are no supermen in the body of Christ, and there's also no aquamen either. And so let me unpack that a little bit. When I was a kid, the one cartoon that everybody around my age loved to watch was the Super Friends. Now, that was the lovely cartoon that had Superman and Wonder Woman and Batman and Robin and Apache Chief and Black Vulcan and Samurai, Zan and Jaina, and even good old El Dorado. In saying that there are no Superman in the body of Christ, I mean that there's really nobody out there that has all the gifts of the Holy Spirit in one package. And nobody is like Superman in the fact that they are a one-man army, fast, strong, and vulnerable, not needing anybody else. The list of powers, if you've ever read comic books, and I have, uh, the list of powers given to Superman are pretty ridiculous. Super strength you know about, super speed, super breath, heat vision, time travel, faster than light speed flight, extended lifespan, healing factor, eidetic memory, superhuman hearing and smell, x-ray vision, mind control, that's right, he can do that, invulnerability, rainbow beams from his hands. 
Yes, there's an example of Superman having that power. And there's lots of others too, but this isn't a comic book podcast. Superman's only real weakness is that he got sick around one particular rock, which was a meteorite from a world light years away that didn't exist anymore. I don't know about you, but in my day-to-day life, I just don't encounter a whole lot of meteorites. And if that was my only weakness, I could probably go a goodly long long time without ever stumbling across a meteor. But here's the thing. There's nobody in the body of Christ like Superman that has all the powers and no weaknesses and no real need for other teammates. I once had a book by a reasonably well-known church leader, and on the back of that book, it said something like this. Now, I'm going to obscure it a little bit because I'm not slamming the guy. I'm slamming the concept. It said, Dr. So-and-so is a prophet-apostle who functions as a pastor and evangelist in the body of Christ, and he has been a teacher for XX amount of years. Honestly, I'm not so sure that all of that is true. That sounds like several major equipping gifts functioning in the same person. Such a gifted person could very well be a one-man show that could do all the major work of ministry in that church while everybody else just sat back and watched. The problem with that scenario is that the church is not meant to be an elite collection of professionals who do the work of ministry and everyone else just simply watches and then cleans up after the service. I don't believe that this is what Paul means in his description of the function of spiritual gifts that we've read about over the last couple of days in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. All gifts are needed. All ministry roles are needed. Nobody has been called to be that one-man army of ministry that does all the visible work. It's not about one man doing everything spectacular. There are no supermen in the body of Christ, except, of course, Jesus. Likewise, there's no aquaman in the body of Christ either. By that, and don't hear me knocking on Aquaman, he's one of my favorites actually, but what I mean by that is nobody has a lame, useless gift that doesn't really strengthen or help the church. As I said, Aquaman was probably my favorite of the super friends other than Superman, and when I was a kid, even when I was a teenager, due to the fact that I loved swimming and it was very difficult to get me out of the water once I got in, several of my friends actually called me Aquaman. That said, Aquaman has been parodied many times in memes and comics and videos, etc., as having powers that aren't really particularly conducive to fighting crime. Despite the fact that most of our planet is covered by water, the vast majority of crime and supervillainy actually takes place on land. I don't know if you've noticed that before. Not many big undersea capers going on right now. Being able to communicate with sea life is not a very useful gift. A fact famously lampooned by the Cartoon Network years ago in a commercial where Wonder Woman and Aquaman are captured by the evil villainous Legion of Doom. As they are being lowered into a boiling cauldron of acid, Aquaman attempts to use his powers to free them and then very soberly tells Wonder Woman that his ability to talk to fish isn't helping. 
Wonder Woman just kind of rolls her eyes as the audience gets the unspoken joke, Aquaman is kind of useless as a super friend on terra firma. Not so in the church. There's no such thing in the church. As Paul explains, even gifts of the spirit that aren't obvious or prominent are actually essential and necessary to the body of Christ. Indeed, those giftings and those people who have them might even be due greater honor, as what he says, than those with the more prominent and obvious gifts. Everybody in the body of Christ is needed and absolutely essential to the successful and joyful completion of God's great mission to his church, to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to take the gospel of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Dear Christian, you need to work in tandem with other members of the body of Christ. You're not a supernatural, you're not a spiritual superman that can take the team on your back and lead everybody to victory, like say a Tim Tebow for Florida years ago. On the other hand, you're also not a useless Aquaman that has no real impact on the body of Christ that you're part of. The fact is, Whoever you are, you are a core member of the body of Christ, no matter what your spiritual gift is. Whatever Christian fellowship or group that you are part of desperately needs you, whether they realize it or not, and they should, and you need them, whether you realize it or not. You weren't designed to be a solo act, and neither was I. So join with them, serve God together with them, enjoy power and fruitfulness. 1 Corinthians 14.26, we read yesterday, says, What should you do then, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each one has a song, a lesson, a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all these things be done for the strengthening of the church. So we're going to finish out today our discussion of foundational truths about spiritual gifts with truths number 8, 9, and 10, and then we're going to read our scriptures for the day. So, spiritual found gifts, foundational truth number 8. Spiritual gifts should not be neglected, or they could become dormant. I find it fascinating that somebody that was as fruitful as Timothy, who was trained by Paul, would require not one, but two reminders in Scripture to fan his gifting into flame and not let it lie dormant. Keep in mind that he got his spiritual gift, according to Paul, by Paul laying his hands on him and there being a word of prophecy. He was a church planner. He was a pastor. He was an apostle, or at least a uh, sub-apostle, and he was a co-author of more biblical books than anybody in the Bible except for Paul himself. If Timothy needed these kinds of reminders, then how much more do we? We can't left, we can't let our spiritual gift from God lie dormant. We need to fan it into flames. So says 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7, where Paul says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Foundational truth about the gifts of the Spirit. Number nine, the variety of spiritual gifts given and the variety of roles that gifted people will have are meant to bring unity in diversity 
to the body of Christ, not disunity. The way forward to unity, real unity in the church or the body of Christ is kind of interesting. Rather than God making all of his people similar with similar passions and values and goals and roles and giftings, he's instead purposed to fit his body together with remarkable diversity and differences, and he has done so with the intention that there be no division in the body. Yes, we're different, different passions, different backgrounds, different gifts, different callings, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic classes, but none of those things are supposed to separate us. We should be so unified, according to 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, that when one of us suffers, we all suffer. And when one of us is honored, we're all rejoicing about it. Gifts of the Spirit aren't meant to divide, they're meant to unite. 1 Corinthians 14, 24 through 26 says, Instead, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the less honorable, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for each other. So if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Finally, number 10, foundational truth about spiritual gifts. One can apparently be remarkably gifted in terms of spiritual gifts, but honestly, not all that mature or loving. And we need to be really careful about this because somebody who is extremely gifted but not biblically mature or wise, such a person should not be praised or emulated or followed due to the dynamism and the strength of their gifting. They are nothing. Now, let me say that again. A person can be strongly gifted as a pastor, a teacher, a prophet, evangelist, or maybe a televangelist. And the fact that they are strongly gifted does not mean that they are to be imitated and followed. Spiritual fruit is a much more reliable indicator of maturity than spiritual gifts. Moreover, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13 that one can be very, very gifted with some of the highest or most spiritual seeming gifts, but if they aren't manifesting obvious love, then they are of no count in the body of Christ. They're nothing. I believe one of the reasons why the Western church has seen so much scandal in the past 50 years is because we have elevated strongly gifted people to prominent and unaccountable positions of leadership, but we've not rightly evaluated the maturity or love level of these people to discern whether or not they should be put in such places of leadership. In 1 Corinthians 13, 2, which we read a couple of days ago, Paul says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Let me close with one more big chunk of scripture from yesterday. I believe that 1 Corinthians 14, 26 through 31 might be the clearest and deepest picture we have of the powerful, fresh, first century gathering of believers. One of the most detailed descriptions of a church gathering in the entire Bible. You think there would be more about what a Sunday morning church gathering looked like in the Bible, but there's not a lot of descriptions of that. I know here that Paul is upholding an ideal. That is what we are to look like when we gather together. 
we don't usually look like this. In fact, I don't believe I know of any gathering of Christians in America that does. But this is the picture of the first century church given to us in Scripture that I believe we are supposed to seek to attain. So 1 Corinthians 14, 26-31. What then is the conclusion, brothers? Whenever you come together, each one has a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, another language or a tongue, or an interpretation. All things must be done for edification. If any person speaks in another language, there should be only two, at most three, each in turn, and someone must interpret. But if there's no interpreter, that person should keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should evaluate. But if something has been revealed to another person sitting there, the first prophet should be silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that everyone may learn and everyone may be encouraged. And the prophet spirits are under the control of the prophets, since God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. So what kind of church gathering does that describe? Now, know this. I'm a senior pastor of a church. Usually, I preach on Sunday mornings, almost every Sunday morning. Not every, but but most of them. And I tell you, when I read the scripture, I think there's room for the preacher. I think there's room for extended teaching on a Sunday morning. But there's not room for a one-man show where one Superman, quote Superman, dominates the whole gathering of the believers. Because that's not what I read or see in Scripture. And honestly, I think it weakens us when we have that kind of perspective on the body of Christ. When we all look to one man to do all the major work of ministry, we are weakened. When we realize that we are all the body of Christ, we all have something to contribute. We all have a psalm, a teaching, a revelation, all of these things coming together for edification of the body of Christ. When we get that, we're going to get the dynamic that Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, where the church comes together in unity, being formed into Christ the head of the church. So ponder that, my dear brothers and sisters. And let's get into Exodus chapter 11, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you out of here. Now announce to the people that both men and women should ask their neighbors for silver and gold items. The Lord gave the people favor with the Egyptians. In addition, Moses himself was very highly regarded in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. So Moses said, This is what the Lord says, About midnight I will go throughout Egypt, and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant servant girl who is at the grindstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry of anguish through all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or ever will be again. But against all the Israelites, whether people or animals, not even a dog will snarl, so that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come down to me and bow before me, saying, Get out, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will get out. And he went out from Pharaoh's presence, fiercely angry. The Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. 
Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his land. Job chapter 29 verse 1. Job continued his discourse saying, If only I could be as in months gone by, in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone above my head and I walked through darkness by his light, I would be as I was in the days of my youth when God's friendship rested on my tent, when the Almighty was still with me and my children were around me, when my feet were bathed in curds and the rock poured out of streams, poured out streams of oil for me. When I went out to the city gate and took my seat in the town square, the young men saw me and withdrew while older men stood to their feet. City officials stopped talking and covered their mouths with their hands. The noblemen's voices were hushed and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. When they heard me, they blessed me. And when they saw me, they spoke well of me. For I rescued the poor who cried out for help and the fatherless child who had no one to support him. The dying blessed me and I made the widow's heart rejoice. I clothed myself in righteousness and it enveloped me. My just decisions were like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I examined the case of the stranger. I shattered the fangs of the unjust and snatched the prey from his teeth. So I thought, I will die in my own nest and multiply my days as the sand. My roots will have access to water and the dew will rest on my branches all night. My whole being will be refreshed within me and my bow will be renewed in my hand. Men listen to me with expectation, waiting silently for my advice. After a word from me, they did not speak again. My speech settled on them like dew. They waited for me as for the rain and opened their mouths as for spring showers. If I smiled at them, they couldn't believe it. They were thrilled at the light of my countenance. I directed their course and presided as chief. I lived as a king among his troops, like one who comforts those who mourn. Hmm. Luke chapter 14 verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went in to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. He took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them he said, Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull out him out on the Sabbath day? They could find no answer to these things. He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they would choose the best places for themselves. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, don't recline the best place because a more distinguished person than you may have been invited by your host. The one who invited both of you may come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in humiliation, you will proceed to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and recline in the lowest place, so that when the one who invited you comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up higher. You will then be honored in the presence of all the other guests, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. He also said to the one who invited him, 
When you give a lunch or dinner, don't just invite your don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors because they might invite you back and you would be repaid. On the contrary, when you host a banquet, invite those who are poor, maimed, lame or blind and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is the one who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Then he told him, A man was giving a large banquet and invited many. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who were invited, Come, because everything is now ready. But without exception, they all began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have bought a field, and I must go out and see it. I ask you to excuse me. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. I ask you to excuse me. And another said, I just got married, and therefore I'm not able to come. So the servant came back and reported these things to his master. Then in anger, the master of the house told his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the city and bring in here the poor, maimed, blind, and lame. Master, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, and there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the highways and hedges and make them come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, not one of those people who were invited will enjoy my banquet. Now great crowds were traveling with him, so he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, after he has laid the foundation and cannot finish it, all the onlookers will begin to ridicule him, saying, This man started to build and he wasn't able to finish. <laughs> or what king going to war against another king will not first down, sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If not, while the other is still far off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Now salt is good, but if salt should lose its taste, how will it be made salty? It isn't fit for the soil or for the manure pile. They throw it out. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen. And may you and I, brothers and sisters, hear and listen and follow and take heed of the teachings of Jesus. God bless you and Godspeed.